What comes to mind when you hear the term toxigenic mold? Science fiction movies? Or something in your basement that you really need to get checked out? In today's episode, we'll delve into the details of some microscopic threats that have infiltrated public schools in South Carolina, and one scientist's quest to raise awareness while fighting his own health battles from mold exposure. This is Vital Science. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. Today, we're talking with Donnie Patterson. Donnie, it's great to have you here on Vital Science. Uh, Can you tell us more about yourself and your story? Hi, yes. Thanks for having me. Uh, My name is Donnie Patterson, and uh, I am a pharmaceutical microbiologist. I've been in the industry for about 20 years now. And uh, the last couple of years, I have been um, on a quest to uh, educate the public about the uh, health effects of toxigenic mold and um, also fight for positive legislation in my home state of South Carolina, where I found uh, an issue in public schools. And how did you come about this? Uh, Well, it was sort of by accident because uh, I came about it first because I became sick uh, myself. I was infected uh, by a toxigenic mold. Um, It took a long time for uh, me to get uh, a doctor to listen to me and to get a a positive um, diagnosis. And I started wondering, you know, I'm a microbiologist and it was so hard for me to convince a doctor I knew what I was talking about. I started thinking about all the people who are out there who are sick, who might not know what's going on and uh, don't know to fight for, you know, the right diagnosis. And so I started writing about this um, on social media. And what I found was I started getting a lot of messages um, uh, in my inbox and uh, they all were saying they were experiencing the same symptoms that I had. Uh, But one thing they all had in common was they were all public school teachers in South Carolina. Uh, In fact, they were in my home county of Cherokee County, South Carolina. And what were those early symptoms? I mean, doing some research, it looks like many of the warning signs can look like common non-mold related issues, such as congestion, sneezing, coughing, wheezing. Right. Well, it's important to note when we're talking about toxigenic mold, um, there are there are two separate reactions. Okay, so uh, you have you know your common allergic reaction to mold, which are all the symptoms that uh, you just uh, mentioned. But when we talk about toxigenic mold, it's a totally separate issue. So not everyone is actually susceptible to uh, toxigenic mold and its effects. So a lot of times what you'll find is uh, people who are sick and experiencing these symptoms and someone sitting right beside them isn't. My earliest symptom was a rash on my forearms. Uh, It didn't alarm me at all uh, because I I have allergies. So, and I was working in an environment where I was coming in contact with things that could have caused me to break out. But then other people started noticing it and bringing it up. My mom once asked me if I had poison oak or poison ivy. And I I started noticing it more and more. And then I started pinpointing where I was when it happened. And um, I was working at the time helping to uh, set up a lab for a new business. And I was in a room and this certain room or whatever would go in there my arms would break out. And that was my first symptom. 
Um, but then it started getting worse. And by worse, I mean, I got to the point where um, I could not recall certain words or facts. Um, I developed a stutter. Um, I had problems even speaking to clients and things. One day I was having a conversation. I couldn't remember the word microscope. Um, I ended up calling it this thing, that thing that I looked through to see the germs. I couldn't think of these words that I use every day as a, as a professional. And that started to worry me. And I started to you know, wonder uh, what the connection was. And uh, it was at that time that um, I started thinking, you know, back to uh, my education and things that I've learned. And uh, oddly enough, it was a uh, episode of 48 Hours with Dan Rather <laughs> that actually uh, made me first aware of toxigenic mold and the things that it can do to your health. You mentioned earlier that the doctors weren't able to diagnose it right away. When was the turning point when you were feeling all these new symptoms and, and when and how was it officially diagnosed? Now, I called my doctor and explained to him what I thought was going on. And uh, he recommended me to an uh, infectious disease doctor. Um, I went in to see him and I had all my evidence, uh, everything printed out and went to talk to him. And he basically told me I was crazy. Uh, he didn't look at any of my evidence. Uh, was very rude. Um, he grabbed me by my chin and thrust my head back and told me to open my mouth. And I did. And he said, you have thrush. And I said, well, that makes sense because it lowers your immunity. And then he started going down this avenue of, have you ever been tested for HIV? Um, which I had. And, and he, he really was uh, not listening to anything I was saying. Uh, he actually wanted to send me to the lab to have an HIV test. And um, that would be very scary. That's the point where I started thinking how scary this would be for someone who doesn't have my background in education. I knew that wasn't what was wrong with me, but a doctor had said that to me. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the other symptoms of uh, prolonged toxigenic mold exposure is uh, wild mood swings and something they called mold rage. And I remember that moment when he, he said that to me about HIV, I got so angry and he handed me this pass to go to the lab to get blood drawn. And I just threw it back in his face. And I was like, you're not helping me at all. And I, I walked out of the doctor's office. Um, I called my doctor back and uh, he recommended another infectious disease doctor. Um, I called them and uh, they actually wouldn't see me. Uh, the doctor who had seen me before was a respected infectious disease doctor in the area. He had written on my uh, medical record um, that uh, he believed that I was HIV positive, uh, that I maybe had some sort of uh, problems psychologically, and that before I was to be seen by anyone else, he wanted a psych evaluation. And that really you know, angered me and that was a turning point. And so I called my doctor back and I was like, look, this is what's going on. And I know what I have. Will you just believe me? And this is what I need to get better. And thankfully, 
we were able to put together something, uh, a protocol uh, to get me well, but it, it took a while uh, to get better. I still suffer um, from some of the effects even today, and this was well over a year ago, um, but I'm still very, very sensitive to any kind of mold now when I come in contact with it. Um, but yeah, that's how I got better. And uh, it was really that point that made me want to reach out to the public and let them know what's going on. Because like I said, that could be a very scary moment for someone, for a doctor to look at you until you have some devastating disease. And if you don't know any better, to question that diagnosis. You know, that can be life changing. And you mentioned that it was the infectious disease doctors that were helping you along the way. But for me, honestly, that's troubling to think that at the general practitioner level, they might not know how to identify this. Yeah, there's a lot of the medical community. Uh, I was shocked to find how many people uh, in the medical community don't know anything about this, uh, don't know how to treat it. Um, and what they will say to a lot of their patients, what was said to me was uh, when he walked into the room, he said, so you're sick with mold, huh? And I was like, yes, sir. And he was like, there's mold here, there's mold there, there's mold everywhere. Um, that's not what, that, that's not, that is not what's wrong with you. And uh, a lot of people were finding that they were going to the doctor after I started talking about it online and saying they weren't successful and, you know, getting the doctor to listen. Donnie, let's step back for a little bit and go back to the mold itself. And how did you pinpoint that it was the mold and the devastation of, of past hurricanes? Well, uh, it was really because I was able to collect samples, uh, which was great. Um, I was able to get samples from the school and um, positively identify toxigenic mold. And just by knowing the symptoms of exposure, uh, what I went through as well, uh, what they were telling me, what I was identifying, I was able to put together the fact that this was what was going on. Um, also, a lot of teachers um, who had been in, in the school for a long time uh, told me that they had made a connection themselves. Um, they called it the mold cold. They had a, a, a term for it. Um, and they all knew that they were getting sick or it was affecting their health in some way, um, but they didn't have anything to back it up. Um, in South Carolina, you know, we're prone to hurricanes. And even if you're not on the coast, uh, we experience, you know, a lot of the, the wind and rain damage, uh, which has happened over the years. And um, it's really affected schools all over South Carolina. This is not just one county, it's the entire state. And um, I've been all over the state um, speaking with school board members, um, concerned parents, teachers, everyone, um, you know, just trying to raise awareness and, and let them know what's going on with, with their health because a lot of them, you know, were unaware of what was causing their illness. What are the regulations or the guidelines for a school testing for mold post-hurricane? That's the problem. There are no regulations and there are no guidelines. Um, and I found that out the hard way because when I got sick, um, I started calling government agencies like DHEC, uh, the EPA, everyone. I, I thought there had to be some kind of law, something governing this. 
And what I found out was uh, there was absolutely nothing on the books. Um, in fact, the mold that uh, sickened me, Stachybotrys, um, a commercial company had been inside the building, had tested for mold, uh, said they didn't find anything. Um, I later found the Stachybotrys myself. It was so toxic. And I can imagine if there's no guidance on levels, are there any regulations on testing? So do they have to identify what kind of mold it is? Because I imagine every type of mold may have a different way to remediate it. Right. And that is the most frustrating thing for me about this entire uh, battle that I've been having. Uh, these commercial testing companies who are out there. Now, there are some who offer different methods. Uh, but what I found when I looked at the report from the company who tested the building that I was in, uh, for instance, the way they tested and the way they identify, they don't identify to uh, genus and species, only genus. And, you know, there are like hundreds of uh, penicilliums and hundreds of uh, different uh, species of aspergillus, um, but only a handful of them, you know, produce ochratoxin A, which is a toxin which tends to have an affinity for the brain. Uh, but these companies don't differentiate between any genus or species. And what, in fact, the way that I tell it when I'm speaking to the public, um, uh, you know, every living thing has a genus and a species. My example I always use is your dog, this your pet, is the genus Canis species familiaris. Um, but also in the genus Canis, you have Canis lupus, which is a wolf. And so if somebody tells you, you know, I want you to walk in that house and there's 50 members of the genus Canis in there, uh, do you take a chance because you don't know the species? There could be 50 dogs in there, 50 puppies, and it's, you know, a great time. Or there could be 50 bloodthirsty wolves waiting for you in there. And that's how, you know, dramatic a difference uh, the species can be uh, in living organisms and mold and everything. Uh, so that's very important that you're able to identify down to that level because it can, you know, be that big of a difference. So details do matter and specificity is really important. Specificity is everything, especially when we're dealing with, uh, with microorganisms. Want even more science stories? Head over to eureka.criver.com to listen to Sounds of Science. Join me, Mary Parker, as I interview drug discovery researchers, thought leaders on trending industry topics, and patients with a personal stake in the newest pharma research. I cover topics from horseshoe crab evolution to cancer treatment with guests who bring a big picture perspective to science stories. Tune in every month for Sounds of Science at eureka.criver.com. So in an ideal world, what does the testing for mold look like? Whether it's post-hurricane or whether there's a concerned parent who sees mold on the floor or on the ceiling at school. Um, in 2004, the Institute of Medicine, uh, in a report called Damp Indoor Spaces and Health, um, recommended the development of better testing in this area. Uh, they recognized way back then that there was a problem with this industry that was not identifying things down to uh, the species level. Uh, in response to that, the EPA uh, worked for 10 years and developed this test uh, that we call the ERMI test, E-R-M-I, 
which stands for Environmental Relative Moldiness Index. And uh, that's sort of the gold standard right now. Uh, the problem is the EPA claims that this, thing, this test is for research purposes only, uh, that it's not been officially released for public use, uh, but they have given licenses out. And, and so what happened is um, this is the test that's been adopted by doctors who uh, treat mold-borne illnesses. In fact, when you go to one of these doctors who specializes in this treatment, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to give you a pack of wipes that look like Swiffer wipes and uh, tell you to go home and uh, sample your home, sample your car, sample your job. And uh, they take these wipes and they use a, a special kind of PCR analysis that the EPA came up with. Uh, to uh, identify the molds that are in your area. And uh, that's how the doctor narrows down where you're getting your exposure. One of the districts that I work with is actually on the coast uh, and experiencing the worst of uh, the problems here in South Carolina. What we're finding is post-hurricane, you're getting this damage to the building and then you're getting this rain that comes in that you know gives the initial feed to it. But if the damage is not properly remediated, uh, then any time it rains, uh, there's this leak that always happens. Um, also, we are finding a lot with the, um, the air systems in uh, the schools and uh, even in the water systems, there's no insulation or wrapping on the pipes or things like that. So there's always this source of moisture coming in, even when it's not raining, there's always somewhere uh, after this damage is done where there's this feed of moisture to this mold and it keeps thriving. So the problem we're finding, especially in schools and a lot of public buildings are these particle board ceilings that you see everywhere. And so we have this you know, water damage and the mold starts growing there. And so, you know, a maintenance person will come around, pop that one out and put a new one in. Uh, the problem is you haven't remediated the mold whatsoever. What I mean by that is you haven't done anything to clean it or, or kill it. So you're popping that out. There are spores and mold everywhere in that area. You're putting a new one in. So in fact, instead of solving the problem, you've made it worse and compounded it because where it was destroying this board and going to run out of a food source eventually, you've just given it a new place to thrive. When I initially took to social media about this, uh, a lot of the schools started scrambling and changing out the particle boards uh, because it just so happened uh, the timing of my post, uh, there were parent-teacher conferences coming up. So all the parents were going to be coming into the school. So there was a mad dash uh, to kind of cover up uh, this problem. And uh, at th by this point, the teachers uh, were sick and, and fed up. And a lot of them were texting me in real time what was going on inside the schools. And so I knew uh, that uh, I called it the, the great tile switch of 2018 is what I referred to it as. And uh, so I would know what was going on inside the schools. And 
I would tell parents ahead of time, hey, if your child attends this school, they're changing out ceiling tiles right now. If they are especially susceptible to these molds or if they're already sick, make sure you have their inhaler on hand or, or whatever medication on hand because it's about to get worse. And the next day, we would see so many more students out of school because they were sick. It was very weird to me because I figured I would come out with this information and everyone would be like, you know, this is making our kids sick. This is making our teachers sick. We have to do something about it. Uh, it very much wasn't like that at all. Uh, and in fact, uh, there was a lot of pressure on the teachers not to say anything uh, about the conditions of the schools, which was very disappointing to me. Wow. So it seems like the band-aid that they were doing in, in switching out the tiles was in, in fact feeding, feeding the beast, making it stronger. Exactly. What you should actually do if you have this problem um, is you should take out the particle board and immediately bag it. And the area should be thoroughly cleaned with a sporicide, not bleach. Bleach is the absolute worst thing you can do uh, because it's not 100% effective against spores, first of all. Uh, but second of all, the caustic nature of the bleach. Uh, so the children are breathing this in as irritating their air passages um, so they can actually take in more uh, mold spores or, or mold fragments uh, because the problem is also with toxigenic mold it doesn't have to be a live spore uh, to make you sick. That's why the uh, EPA, when they came up with their ERMI test, uh, is coupled with this uh, very specific PCR analysis because what we found is it can be fragments of a spore or, or, or a piece of the, the DNA sequence even can uh, cause your immune system to react. So it's very specific protocol that you need to follow when you're cleaning and changing these out. And in fact, you should not put a new one in immediately. You should remediate the area and leave it for a while and keep cleaning and then put one in and keep a constant check on it. You just mentioned DNA sequencing. Even if we don't know the genus or species of the mold, wouldn't DNA sequencing kind of be the answer for that? we would know what it is and we would know if it came back. That's absolutely what it is. And that's what uh, the Institute of Medicine said in 2004, which is what led the EPA to develop this uh, new type of PCR and this test. Uh, it, it absolutely has to be uh, DNA sequenced. Uh, first of all, for the specificity, uh, but me thinking as a microbiologist and a scientist is you want to know, uh, you know, if this thing is, uh, you know, mutating. Uh, as we know, uh, some things can uh, survive a certain antimicrobial. And then if it does, then it produces a new strain of this mold that is always going to be. Uh, immune to this antimicrobial. So it's very important that you get that specific when you're testing because uh, you need to know if the protocols that you're following are effective or if they're making the problem worse. While I was uh, doing my research, a news agency was contacted 
by someone who worked for the U.S. Department of Education. And actually, they were sent to South Carolina. There was an ongoing lawsuit, Abbeville uh, versus the South Carolina Department of Education. Uh, basically, it had to do with the fact that the poorer districts in South Carolina didn't have access to um, you know, the technology and things that other schools did. Uh, but as a result, the U.S. Department of Education took some uh, interest in it. When my story aired, uh, someone uh, contacted the news station. Um, and said that he was a gentleman from the U.S. Department of Education. Uh, he was sent down to South Carolina to do the inspection, to look into what they were saying about no access to technology and everything. And he said, I wasn't sent there to talk about the environmental conditions of the schools, but I, I could not ignore the fact and leave that out of my report. He was like, so even though my report was supposed to focus on this technology, I had to throw this part in there because I saw mold everywhere. It was a systemic problem. Uh, he said I, he couldn't even understand how anybody could ever breathe in there, much less learn. What was happening was when I was going to these different districts, um, all the answers were the same. We didn't know this was a problem. Um, and I was contacted by a teacher who had moved uh, from this district, and she told me that she had gone to the doctor, uh, had been diagnosed with a severe mold allergy, uh, knew that it was in the school, uh, took it back to the principal and the district to just try to get some resolution. And uh, what I heard was, you know, the district uh, officials came in, uh, there was a closed door meeting and when the door opened, uh, she exited and she didn't return to the school. Uh, she moved districts. Um, I found that a lot uh, in South Carolina. The teachers were very afraid to talk to me at first. Um, it was easier in my home district where I attended because they knew me. Uh, but when I was traveling outside of you know where I was known, and trying to get information, it was very, very hard. And uh, that was disconcerting because the teachers are really the front line and they're the ones that can give the information to the parents, but they're being discouraged, discouraged uh, against talking about this. And uh, I even had evidence of you know, teachers who had been written up for even mentioning the word mold. And then when this, you know, took off and it, my post went viral, which is how I ended up on the news. We are learning new details about those air and water quality tests at Abbeville High School, the school more than six decades old. Parents have told us they're worried about the conditions there. According to the Abbeville County Schools Superintendent, Dr. Julie Fowler, they had the city flush water pipes after a parent held up this water bottle she said came from the school. Three air quality tests were also performed, but microbiologist Donnie Patterson says the tests are meaningless because they aren't specific enough. You have the genus of the mold, but not the species. And without that piece of information, you've wasted taxpayer money, you've wasted time, and you're not giving the parents any information whatsoever to work with. 
The district said they did not make the decision about what tests to run. They left that up to the experts they hired. According to test results from that company, on August 19th, they found air quality issues at two samples. After cleaning, new samples showed a slight reduction in the mold, but still showed levels that were too high. A third test found that additional cleaning efforts were successful. The report recommended maintaining temperatures to help prevent future mold growth. The superintendent said the district will continue to monitor air quality. And we reached out to the company that the district hired to do this testing about claims that their testing was too vague. They had no comment tonight. At 7 on Main, Ann Maxwell, 7 News. When mold is a concern and noted, what does the school do then? Does it you mentioned in some cases they're switching out ceiling tiles. Mm -hmm. When mold is found, is a third-party tester coming to test it? If they said, yes, it's it's a certain type of mold, are they also remediating it? Or is that done by the school? Who's, who's remediating? What I've found is most districts in South Carolina already have uh, an environmental uh, testing uh, business on retainer. And they also have somebody who does remediation on retainer. So there was, you know, someone there to do the remediation. The problem was the, the testing company goes in and they're not finding anything because there's a fundamental problem with the methodology uh, that they're using. The test method is just not effective. Um, first of all, they're depending heavily on um, nothing but air samples and they're testing uh, the schools when school is let out and i found out that once school is let out then all the air systems in the school are shut down so this person is testing in there and uh, we know in science when we're doing tests we want to simulate as closely as possible real world conditions they weren't finding the mold because mold spores don't fly <laughs> you know they land on the ground and they stay and if there's nothing to stir that up then you're not going to find it i actually found um, a study uh, where this scientist went into some water damaged buildings and he tested them under the conditions which i just described so at rest uh, no air running no airflow no one walking around absolutely empty building and you know took results and then he flushed the room with a sterile gas and repeated the test and what he found was mold levels were as high as 30,000 times more wow than what he found before uh just by doing that so that was one of the big problems I had with the testing. Yeah, it seems like there's just a fundamental flaw in the system. There is. It's a really, it's just broken, basically, which is uh, why I felt it so important that we needed uh, some type of legislation on the books because, you know, it's just, it's just not being handled properly all the way around. Uh, even if you have a district that's being proactive and getting testing done, they're not using the right method or methodologies at all. So even if there was a problem, they're probably not going to find it.
And because of the lack of a correct diagnosis from the medical side, I guess there's really no detailed data that we can trend. No, there's not. And that's a very frustrating thing because uh, there's so many things that can happen and go wrong uh, when you're exposed to this toxigenic mold for so long. And it's very serious. Gone unchecked, um, you can develop uh, what's called chronic inflammatory response syndrome, uh, which is basically a hyper uh, activation of your immune system. And it can mimic any sort of autoimmune disorder. Uh, and what we're finding is, is your, your immune system knows there's something wrong. There's something there, but it doesn't know quite what it is. And so at a certain level, and we don't know what that level is for any given person, but at a certain time, your immune system just kicks in, goes in overdrive, and it can present itself as any autoimmune disorder, um, even leukemias and lymphomas. Uh, one of the teachers I worked with uh, had T-cell lymphoma, and she said one of the first questions her doctor asked her, because uh, he was educated about this, was had she been, been exposed to black mold? And she said at the time she thought it was such a ridiculous question, she just said, no, uh, it's not until I took the social media and started talking about it that she revisited it and uh, went back to her doctor and, and it's very important to know this because uh, it may be presenting itself as T-cell lymphoma, but you might not necessarily need chemotherapy. Uh, you need the therapy to rid your body of the toxins, calm that immune system down, and stop having this reaction. So we don't even know how many people, you know, a year die because they're being treated for the wrong thing. Back to the schools, what are some key warning signs parents should be looking for from their kids, whether it's post-hurricane or if they just suspect something? Uh, a lot of times they will notice, first of all, um, uh, horrible problems with breathing and a cough, a horrible cough that they can't get rid of. And none of the conventional methods uh, that doctors offer are helping the child, but also um, it can cause this general brain fog and your problem recalling facts and things like that. But yeah, the rash that I mentioned on my forearms, um, a lot of times they will notice that early on as well. Donnie, where do things currently stand and what work is there still left to do? Well, currently uh, South Carolina, we were successful in uh, passing the uh, first uh, mold-related legislation in U.S. history. Um, it's a study uh, that's being funded uh, to look into uh, the health effects of toxigenic mold, uh, how widespread the problem is in the state, uh, and also proper ways to remediate it. Um, this was just passed last year. The study committee is just now uh, getting formed. Uh, in fact, I was in Columbia yesterday, the state capitol. Um, so we're just now getting that kind of going. Um, I'm there uh, basically because I want to make sure that uh, you know, proper testing is done. Uh, there's so many uh, companies who are you know know that this bill has been passed 
these commercial companies that I've talked about who, you know, kind of want in on the on the study because they, you know, want a piece of the pie. And, and I'm really, really much there to make sure that that doesn't happen uh, because that's, you know, all this testing that's been done in South Carolina schools up to this point is irrelevant. It was a waste of taxpayer money and, and it's, it's ongoing and it's very frustrating. So uh, what we need to do is really get the, the study going. Uh, I need to get the information out there uh, about the, uh, the testing that's available uh, to the public and make sure that they're making the right choices. But we also need to come together uh, in the scientific community and come up with, you know, different forms, more accurate forms of testing or, or things that are more readily available to the public. Uh, it's very hard uh, for your average Joe to, to go out there and get a test that's accurate. Um, it's very hard you know, even if you call a, a company, there are some commercial companies that know about the ERMI test that the EPA developed, and they do offer that testing. Uh, but you have to know what you're asking for. And, you know, your general person that, and, you know, out there is not versed in microbiology. Not everyone's a pharmaceutical microbiologist with 20 years experience. Um, so that's why it's very important to me that I, I'm getting the information out there uh, that I'm telling as many people and using as many platforms as I can uh, to let them know uh, what their options are. But we also need legislation nationwide. This doesn't need to be something that's just happening in South Carolina uh, because we estimate about 85 to 95% of schools in the U.S. are affected by toxigenic mold. Wow. And this is scary because the long-term effects of this, uh, what we're looking at basically is entire generations of uh, school children with permanent neuro neurological damage. And that's not me being, uh, you know, using scare tactics or anything like that. Uh, that's actually a quote that I, I, I took from a doctor uh, that I do a lot of work with. Uh, it's a very real thing. Uh, because there are neurological effects as well from toxigenic mold, uh, seizures, uh, neuromuscular uh, effects, all kinds of things that can happen. It's really scary to think about uh, leaving this unchecked for so long. Um, so we really all need to be proactive in this. Uh, like I tell everybody in South Carolina, yes, we have a study going on, but this is going to take a lot of time. Your kid may be graduated before we even get finished with this. And then we have to take these results and then get legislation for that. Um, so that's where we need to move for the future is get this legislation. But right now, parents need to be on the ground and be very proactive in their kid's school district. And they need to really go in and inspect uh, the schools. They have a right as parents to walk every square inch of that school, uh, see what's going on. Uh, they need to make sure they're paying attention to their child's health and uh, they need to uh, demand uh, proper testing and remediation when necessary. And 
I really have to depend on parents when I'm doing this work with school districts. Um, one person can't do it. Uh, it takes, you know, it takes the parents really putting the pressure on for anything to happen and to hold your elected officials accountable. Well, Donnie, it's been great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for making us more aware and more educated on toxigenic mold. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Donnie's story is ongoing, and we hope that schools and others continue to learn about the seriousness of toxigenic mold, the importance of proper testing, and the techniques for effective removal and remediation. To learn more, please visit globalindoorhealthnetwork.com, which is also linked in the show notes. Do you have a suggestion, episode idea, or a great story to tell? Contact us at vitalscience@crl.com. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at criver.com slash vitalsciencepodcast. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Sounds of Science, focusing on innovation and trends in the life science industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vital Science. I'm Chris Garcia. See you next time.